Welcome to Museums and Chill, a podcast by the International Council of Museums, where we talk everything and anything museums. This is Ana Paula from ICOM. And today's guest is Professor Ellen Chatterjee, Professor of Human and Ecological Health and author of the book Museums, Health and Wellbeing. Welcome, Professor, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. For starters, could you tell us a bit of how are museums and culture related to health and well-being? Well, I think they're really fundamental and we have these amazing assets in our museums and our heritage sites and those spaces and what they contain in them. And, and I think the contributions that they can make to our health and well-being are really fundamental. Um, what we've found really is that, that those spaces and those collections and the messages that are contained within that and the stories can be really instrumental Um, in terms of enabling people to kind of access a greater understanding of their health, improving their health if that's what they want to do, or simply I think having that, that wider understanding of well-being and, and what it means to be able to engage with your well-being. And I think many museums are already doing fantastic work around what we might call public health or the health of the public. And that's what we've been really interested in. And what are these initiatives that museums have been doing? Can you talk about that a bit? Well, we've seen just so many different examples, sometimes very much focused on individual programs of activity targeting specific groups of people. So lots of work around working with people with dementia, working with uh, mental health service users, but a real variety of different ways that museums and heritage organisations and arts organisations are engaging. Um, a lot of it is quite focused on specific programmes of activity, like I say. So it might be, you know, six weeks of doing art making uh, or collections based activities, tours and talks. Um, and some of the most interesting programmes, I think, are those ones that really take advantage of all the many different assets that we have within our spaces and within our collections and actually within our staff and the museums and heritage professionals that are housed within them. So just really exciting examples in different museums all over the world, actually, that, that we've talked to and worked with, where they're making use of all those assets and doing exciting things from collections-based work, art-making, craft, gardening, other sorts of you know, creative outputs through to things like meditation um, and dance and performance. So I think just really exciting opportunities where those spaces, those collections and that heritage and that history can help inform really exciting programming. What we found in our research is that when people engage on multiple levels, for example, there's lots of opportunities to do really exciting learning and that involves lots of cognitive, deep level thinking, meaning making, connection with identity, as alongside activities perhaps that involve a physical element and perhaps for people who are not able to do something that involves their hands because that involves things like hand-eye coordination. Um, it involves things like, for example, precision grip. Um, so those sorts of physical tasks alongside this cognitive or brain activity in an environment which is kind of enjoyable, it's creative, um, and it's also social. What we've seen is we can see really amazing benefits in terms of very specific aspects of health and well-being. We see improvements in psychological health and well-being, people's perceptions of how well they feel. We've seen improvements in people's perceptions, for example, of how connected they feel, reducing isolation, um, reducing loneliness, 
opportunities to socialise, helping to improve things like not just connectivity, but social skills. The learning opportunities, providing opportunities they, to think about your own identity, but also where you're at in your life. And, for example, giving you perhaps the impetus to get into volunteering or perhaps even get you into work or back into work if you've not been able to work. So these are these really important outcomes that affect not just specific aspects say, of physical health or mental health, but also what we call the wider determinants of health. And so I think museums and heritage organisations have got a really great opportunity to advocate for that really core role that they can play in society that contributes not even just to health and wellbeing, but actually to society and the economy. How do you think museums can approach the fact that sometimes they can be a bit overwhelming or people can feel like it's not their space because they might need information to be there because if they don't know about the artists or if they don't know about the space, they might not be able to appreciate it all. Because I feel like they are excellent spaces for people to reconnect. But at the same time, if you don't have this freedom of just feeling like you can embrace the space, it can be overwhelming for people to arrive at a place and be like, oh my God, this is so huge. Because then we have these amazing places and, and buildings that are huge And sometimes even just arriving to the place and looking at it could be very overwhelming. How do you think museums can approach that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And a lot of the audiences and a lot of the research that we've done has been very much focused on working with museums who are looking to tackle exactly that issue. You know, they're working perhaps with communities, individuals, populations where those individuals are not kind of everyday users, they're not regular users. And in many of the projects we've worked in, it's people who've never visited a museum before, or if they have, they've been once perhaps when they were a child, but they don't see themselves as a museum goer, or they wouldn't go and visit a, a monument or a heritage site because they don't see it as for them. And, and we've been really interested in what those barriers are. And For us, it's been, I guess, the key learning that we've had from working with museums and participants, communities, has been around the partnership with perhaps those organisations who are connected in with some of those what you might call hard to reach or marginalised communities who have expertise of working with vulnerable communities. So, for example for people who may be isolated or lonely, perhaps, you know, linking up, say, with a local community organisation that has already built that trust and that, that level of responsibility of understanding what it means to build a safe environment and, of course, an accessible environment. And, you know, working with those participants, you know, really in terms of forging those links to understand what those barriers might be for them, because it could be both physical, as you say, it could be psychological. Um, and if you genuinely want to open your doors to a diverse community, then you need to understand all of those communities' needs. And of course, the best way to do that is by simply asking them um, and what will encourage them into that space. And we've seen that that sort of partnership working with those communities and with those organisations that perhaps have already built that trust is, is a really great way to break down those barriers. Now that you mentioned considering and asking, we had a, an episode on this podcast where we talked about how museums can be more welcoming. And I remember our guest, Kate, talking about um, how important it is to acknowledge that there are different ways of people appreciating what they're seeing because, or even just touching because then we have different ways of, of learning and different ways of appreciating, whether it is in audio, in video, in looking at something, touching something. How would you connect the importance of acknowledging these different ways of experiencing to actually providing these spaces? 
Yeah, I think that is really important. And it comes down again, I think, to discussing and communicating with that audience, because you're right, not everybody is necessarily, you know, if they're visiting an art museum, they might think, well, I'm not interested in that particular art, or I'm not interested in art generally. But I think that's where it comes into that consultation with programme design. So asking the participants, because yeah, maybe those particular artworks are not going to stimulate them. That particular space, they're not going to find uh, stimulating or they find it intimidating. And so I think it's important, again, in that element of co-designing and co-producing something that is meaningful for those audiences. And I know that is time consuming and it's very resource intensive, but the sorts of examples we've seen where that has happened, they build really long and lasting and trusting relationships with their communities um, I mean, the sorts of examples that I can draw from, from the UK, places like uh, what was in Canterbury, which is a, a small town in the south of England, in Kent, and their local authority museum, which contained a lot of kind of local history, social history, but a lot of artworks. And what they've done over many years is looking to break down those barriers, get people through their front door into a kind of older building that you know might have accessibility issues. Um, and it's been through building programmes of trust and programmes that are meaningful for those audiences. And that has included doing things like gardening, doing things like craft activities like knitting, having coffee mornings. So it might not just be around art appreciation or even art making. It might be like a wider diversity. And they've evolved that through that consultation with those participants, those communities they're looking to reach out to and those partners and we've seen that being really effective in then those communities really valuing that museum um, as a space where they feel like they're welcomed and they feel like it's the home and you know they really value it as part of maintaining their health and well-being. Yeah it, it, it brings me back to something that I I don't remember where I heard it but how museums can really revive the community where they are I remember visiting a museum in, in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. It was a very interesting museum because what they were showcasing was every single part and the history of the favelas and how they are being perceived and how they are changing. And this space basically created a historic and also like an archive of their own story to show to other people and to to be able to communicate what they've wanted to show from their community because it's always things can always be portrayed differently from an outsider and I feel like museums have become a space and have always been a space to showcase what they have in their own community and which also reminds a reminder and reinforcement of what you're saying of the co-working with the community what will actually impact the value and the importance of the museum itself or the cultural institution that can work on it. Well, I think it's really interesting because even the term museum or heritage, you know, it means different things to different people, but that can be off-putting. So again, back to that example I talked about in Canterbury, which was their local history, you know, museum. They changed their name. They did a lot of consultation and they're now called the Beanie House of Art and Knowledge. Um, and it's that idea of shifting from shifting, I guess, the narrative and the, the, what, the, what that organisation looks like, how it's perceived by that community and re-establishing themselves as a kind of seat of learning and a seat of somewhere you go to think about well-being and think about identity and meaning making so why it's not just about artworks that might be from an artist that you might not you may or may not be interested in but it's more about a place where you go for enrichment and I really like that idea and I think that's what museums are but of course the word museum doesn't always mean that to everybody and we're of course very privileged to have you know experience of visiting many many different types sizes varieties of museums across the world but not everybody has that privilege 
So I think that's where the real opportunities are, particularly around mental health, because I really do think that things like museums, I would also extend that to all that sort of wider heritage, libraries, archives, you know, they have got a significant role to play in society in tackling some of these really big issues around, I would say not just mental health, but also different aspects of physical health. And like I say, these wider, what we call social determinants of health, because we now know that over 80% of our health is actually determined not simply by physical ill health, um, but actually by these wider determinants. So where you live, where you're born, where you grow up, things like what kind of house you live in, uh, what kind of accommodation you have, the quality of that accommodation, so the environment that you live in. Um, and so that's where these sorts of what we, we often refer to as community assets, I think, have got a real opportunity to reposition themselves as really vital community assets. Like we know that example you talked about in Brazil, where there's that real opportunity to help communities that are very poor, potentially, that have you know lack of opportunities that can help those individuals and those communities you know, have optimism and have hope, opportunities for learning, um, opportunities for connecting. And, and I, I think that's, that's such a, a great social opportunity, isn't it, to, to bring about change for the good. Yes, of course. I feel like for us, I would have never imagined going to a museum, for example, in the favelas, in this case, because then you think of the favelas as a space that is unapproachable. And then you get this chance of, of going and seeing everything. And then you get the opportunity to learn from something that you would have never imagined itself. Um, And I feel like that might happen in many other scenarios, many other spaces, which then again just proves the importance of museums and how they can reach an immense amount of people that you never know are aware or unaware of what they're displaying. So the role museums can take in fostering this cross-cultural understanding and promoting can be very overwhelming as well for museum professionals, maybe. So how do you think it can be on the other way around for the staff and for the museum workers? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because what we've seen is that those museums that have really had a, a kind of fundamental strategic shift in how they work, that's where they've seen the biggest changes. And in many cases, that has meant, you know, a complete reorganisation of that, that place, of that organisation, changing things like job descriptions, changing things like job titles. And one of the museums we work with a lot is at Whitworth a museum in Manchester, an art gallery in Manchester. It's surrounded by a really nice park. And they went uh, quite through quite a fundamental change in their strategy, really embedding health and well-being in community at the heart of kind of everything they did. And we've seen that time and time again. And that can be uncomfortable, I think. You know, for example, if you're a conservator or, a, you know, a curator and your job description suddenly changes to embedding health and well-being, for example, you know, what does that mean for you in terms of your expertise, um, your skill set, your, you know, your, just your day-to-day -day working and, and what your roles and responsibilities are. So I think it can be uncomfortable, but I think it is absolutely essential. And again, where we've seen that happening really well, we've seen such significant impacts that the museum can have. Another museum we work with a lot here in the UK, Tyne and Weir, the, the northeast of England in Newcastle. They've got a whole different set of museums, eight or nine museums across the region. And again, it, it, initially it was just one museum educator who, you know, 15 years ago was really passionate about working with communities, doing did really interesting work around working with stroke survivors, 
people with dementia, homeless people, people dealing with addiction and recovery. And she, just as a one-man band, you know, built up these amazing programmes. And now the whole museums have health and wellbeing embedded throughout their strategy, through their programming. They've had, you know, 10 years or or more of this kind of programming. They've seen funding uplifts thanks to that kind of work. And I think a, a real shift in attitude towards the museum. So I think the great thing about that is it shows that individual museum professionals can make a change. I think it also needs to to be, you know, leadership from the top. We do need to see our museum directors and chairs of boards of trustees and funders recognising this really important role that museums can play and supporting their staff in that journey. And that may need involve things like, you know, giving training opportunities, it may involve things like thinking about safeguarding, because obviously working with vulnerable populations, we know is very challenging and and requires support for the staff. Uh, And so we need to think about all of that, those sort of wider, if you like, scaffolding um, challenges. But I think it's a really important thing for museums to go through. And we're seeing more and more examples of museums doing that, creating new posts, health and wellbeing posts. We see that, we've seen that all across the world in many museums that we're working on. And I think that's a really positive. Yeah, and um, have you heard on, um, because recently, actually last year, at ICON, we we saw this initiative from the government of, uh, in Brussels, because it was created there, this initiative of prescribing museums for mental health, which I think then talks about the importance of going beyond the museum community on, on pushing for these initiatives, not only the museums and cultural venues, but the higher-ups in the same region or spaces. How important do you think these collaborations are? I think it's really important because um, those collaborations also need to work not just with those communities they're looking to to connect with, as well as the you know the senior management across the museum, but also that wider community sector, you know, like I mentioned, sort of it could be charities, you know, we're seeing many examples of that across the world of museums having much, much closer links with other organisations in the community. And critically, those organisations that are responsible for health and the wider health of the public. So that might be, you know, health authorities, it might be psychological services, counselling services, it might be, for example, the local authority who has responsibility, say, for social care, it might be care homes, and of course, you know, working with care homes and working around dementia has been a big area of work for for several museums now um, across the world over many years. Um, But I, I think it's you know, they're not without challenges, especially when you're working with vulnerable populations. And that's really where the partnership with those health partners is really, really crucial because they have the expertise. So they understand um, what those challenges and barriers, but also what the opportunities are. And so they can be great advocates um, for the museum. And that's where that, that co-design element comes in. So both with the participants experiencing that from the communities and those wider community and health partners. So, you know, that's it's a lot of work, I think, for museums. That's a real shift. And, it, and what we found is that requires time, investment, support, training. And we've observed that it takes, you know, often, you know, up to a year to build those sorts of new partnerships. And then, of course, sustaining and maintaining them is is a big job. So it really does require this quite big strategic shift, I think, in the way that the museum 
programmes it's worked, the way it's funded, what kinds of funding. But we're starting to see more and more examples, again, across the world of museums that are accessing, you know, money that for health, money that is for, say, for example, prescribing by making a link with uh, some a health partner who can refer patients into the museum but that's where that element of co-design comes in you really do have to go through that process which is very time and resource intensive but I think there can be a really fantastic benefits for all those parties and most importantly for those communities and that they're looking to reach out to. I think it also can be very overwhelming for museum professionals for any institution to want to have initiatives and to want to provide these spaces but then thinking oh my God, it's taking so long, um, when are we doing it? And then it's also important for their own and our own mental health to understand that it takes time and it's okay because then you can provide an actual collaborative project, an actual um, prepared project rather than just wanting to launch something um, for the good of the community. But if it's fast, it might not have everything that you could have prepared if you waited a bit more. So I think that's also um, very important to acknowledge. So thank you for bringing that up because then it allows people to take a breath breath and just be like, okay, okay, then we can sit down and prepare it with time and actually identify what are the needs of the community, what are our own needs as well. Thank you so much. We've come to the last part of our episode and we have this section called Rapid Fire Questions where we basically ask our guests for recommendations so that our community can furthermore their experience on the subject so as first question i would like you to share us a museum i know you already did during the conversation but another one that you might think is already doing good practices involving uh health on their on their program or anything i guess a, a good one to talk about is is liverpool museums and their house of memories project um, you've probably come across that and heard about it already before it was very much inspired by moma museum of modern art Um, in the USA, their Alzheimer's programme that they run. Um, And I guess what's amazing about it is, you know, again, we talk talk about, you know, the single museum professional, often we're operating, you know, as sort of lone wolves sometimes. And and certainly I was in that case when I was running a museum in our university, our zoology museum. And you have very limited time, resources, funding. But what can be achieved, and and Carol Rogers, who set their programme up, it's called House of Memories, um, and you know she's expanded it across the world you know she goes off to you know Singapore USA all over the world uh, speaking to people about the program and helping them set up their own program and in a way the kind of target audience is very much focused around care homes it's very much focused around building this idea of uh, museum collections loan boxes care boxes focused around kind of heritage working within care homes and working with care homes professionals to give them the kind of tools um, and just that idea that just one person can st- can stimulate a whole program and it's been running you know for many many years yeah that that's great um can you also talk about um maybe a song recommendation that you will give to experience a museum beyond <laughs> what what they can experience physically there oh heck I think it would have to be. I don't. I can't think of a specific song. I mean, it would probably be for me so, something like you know from Johns Hopkins, who they they've done music for. I forgot what the album's called, but music for kind of psychotherapy, and um, that kind of you know it's very ambient. Um, it's very meditative, and I really like that. And I'm so glad you brought up the yoga. And we've seen really lovely examples of you know meditation going on in museums. And I especially when I visit you know heritage sites. 
Um, I, I find that really lovely to be able to combine that, you know, sound and heritage. And there's so so many lovely like, apps and experiences out there, aren't there? And, and there's great opportunities, I think, for building that into sort of well-being, well, improving your well-being. I feel like that's great. Any, I mean, we all have different vibes, you know, like we all enjoy different rhythms around different spaces. Like it might be so obvious for someone to like exercise with, I don't know, the electronic music, but then for someone else is doing it with classical music. We don't know. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Missions and Chill. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Professor Ellen. And don't forget to tune in for our next episode. Thank you so much, Professor, for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been great to be here.